Danny Finkelstein, Lord Finkelstein, it's brilliant to have you on 20 Questions With. I want to start by asking you about your role as a Times columnist. So you've been with the Times since 2001. You started your column, I think, in 2005. So that's the better part of two decades. What do you set out to do when you write a column? That's a good question. Um, so, I mean, the first thing you've always got is this kind of fear that they'll You'll, they'll, you'll have nothing to say and it'll be a blank page. But of course, that doesn't happen. What happens is it varies in quality. Uh, you'll always have something uh, you can put in it. But I do try, I once tried to do two things to say something original, but also to say something that I believe. And that's actually a, com a difficult combination. To say something original or something that you believe isn't hard, but to say both, that is quite hard. So sometimes what you're doing is looking for different ways of expressing a familiar argument or different things things that you can add to that argument, um, analogies or metaphors or connecting up bits of literature. But I do want, I want people, uh, John Witherow, when he was editor of the Times, he had a, he had a sort of principle, he wanted to read it and feel at the end that he learned something that he didn't know. And I, I think that's actually quite a good rule. I tried to follow it. I, when I heard him say it, I thought, well, that's actually what I have been trying to do, but I'll redouble the effort to do it. Does the process change? Talk us through the process. Help us paint a picture of what it's like for Danny Finkelstein when he sets about his column. So sometimes, do you feel absolutely grabbed by something? You think, gosh, I've got to write about this. Let's get it straight down. And other times, you're not so sure, but the events of the week, you're allowed to percolate through you. How does it work? Yeah, all sorts of different things, um, all sorts of different ways. So sometimes it's a relatively routine political week. And you have got to start working, in my opinion, quite early because you might wish to, I don't know, let's say that you wanted to make an analogy with the 1950s. You, you need to have read lots of stuff about that. And that takes time. So, you know, if you if you only have thought of this column idea on a Monday and you're going to write it on Tuesday morning, that's quite late. So when when politics is routine, then I'll tend to plan a lot, try to have the original idea early. And the moment I do, then plunge into reading. And often I can end up you know, eating up most of the weekend, just reading and reading different books and articles, going back to things that I've read before and making sure that I understand the topic, but also making sure that I can bring something new to it. Uh, but other times, and, you know, a, a good example of this was... Um, Boris Johnson and the parties, things would be happening the whole time. I, I even had a situation where I was writing a column on something else, but then Boris Johnson got his fine in the middle of the day and I had to change the subject then. And then you've got to, that means you've got to be thinking all the time about what you think about affairs. So you're always reading and thinking all the time. And, you know, for all that people criticise it, one of the things that I find pretty useful is Twitter. And I find the thing useful that is also very annoying, which is people saying irritating things you don't agree with, sometimes in a quite aggressive way. But they help me a lot because I try, however irritating they are, to take their arguments seriously, realise that they could be as correct as me, and try to ensure that if I am going to take an, uh, make an argument, it's not one that ignores their obvious point. And I find that kind of whole cut and thrust uh, the challenge to my own opinions are very useful. Has social media then, Twitter in particular, changed, do you think, the role of a columnist? Has it changed you as a, as a columnist? Do you feel that your voice is now more amplified or less amplified because everyone's got an opinion and everyone to a lesser or greater extent has got a platform? I don't take the view that other people's opinions are sort of intrinsically less valuable than mine and I've got some great wisdom that is more important than anybody else's. And so I can learn from what everyone else is trying to say. And yes, I think it does produce 
views are kind of welcome equality between the views of those people who have got access to mass media like I have and people who don't. And arguments are, you know, kind of robust or or flawed, regardless of the size of one's audience. And social media does impose that discipline. Sometimes the particular form of Twitter doesn't encourage people to make arguments of depth. It encourages a certain flippancy. And people are often quite pleased with themselves when they've dunked someone else with a particularly, um, you know, they'll call someone mate at the end of their tweet to imply that they're the other person's an, a bit of an idiot. And um, that is not a particularly fruitful way. And I, I think that hasn't added to the, to the sum of knowledge or political debate. But I try to remind myself, I'm not very good at this, but I do try to remind myself that I do have you know, I have an opportunity to express myself and, and any sarcasm that I have or any wit at someone else's expense at greater length than everybody else and to larger audiences. So I probably shouldn't get too hung up about people doing it to me a bit more punchily. What do you make of Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter? <laughs> well, look, I, it, Elon Musk is a character I find hard to warm to. And we'll see uh, what, what he has to do uh, with uh, Twitter. It doesn't seem to me that anything that he said um, seems to me to um, to be that sage about the problems of Twitter. Right? The idea that the problem with Twitter is that it uh, is uh, restrictive of free speech seems to me to be an, an amazing take on it. It's a very robust forum for free speech. The problem with it a lot of the time is that it's not very good at authenticating facts so that you can trust them uh, or... Um, ensuring that debate on the platform is civilised and worthwhile, but rather than leaving out people from expressing opinions. So I, I find that piece of analysis a bit odd. I also find his style a bit grating. So a good example of this is this um, blue tick, which somebody has brilliantly pointed out is actually a white tick in a blue circle, but we'll leave that to one side for the moment. Um, the Elon Musk, I think he is entitled to uh, to charge for verification because verification is valuable to me, although it's also valuable to Twitter. And it, it's a bit of a tussle as to who it's more valuable to but okay they're going to try and charge me rather than me having the ability to charge them and it'll and, it, and I think it'll probably work and I'm not too exercised by it I think it's a reasonable attempt on his part to monetize uh, his platform and I, I accept that uh, but he accompanied that with this suggestion that Twitter had a system of peasants and lords now I don't need his tick to be a lord since I actually am one uh, you know not being funny I don't need his his uh, Elon Musk status symbol thank you very much right uh, and I don't care from that point of view but I do need the verification in order that I don't have somebody um, impersonating me online and in order that people who read me both for Twitter's sake and for my sake know that I am who I say I am and that is um, valuable. I didn't ask Twitter to put it there so I, find, I found it quite irritating for someone to attempt to take some money which I don't mind paying because it's not vast sums although for some people it will be quite a lot of money but it's not a vast sum to me anyway and um but I do mind. I don't mind that, but I do mind him doing that and sort of insulting me as if I sort of appropriated his stupid tick in the first place. Whether it's Elon Musk or another individual, is there a risk that one person having so much power over what has become the digital marketplace for ideas does, does that does that worry? Does it matter that so much power is invested in the hands of one man? 
it does raise some questions about and all these social media platforms do they, they do raise some questions of monopoly power there's no question about it they're quite hard ones to solve also because obviously their their intrinsic value not just to them but also to me lies pretty much in the fair monopoly control and it's difficult to see how you i mean you you, you know if the state owned the, the platform that would bring all sorts of other problems which wouldn't necessarily be be better uh they're probably worse so it's hard a hard problem to solve but i would say this i don't think that any platform is sufficiently robust and sufficiently essential to everybody that it can survive any amount of um stupid and offensive behavior by its owner and i think he should be a little bit careful to ensure well i you know i'm not lecturing him but i think if he wants to maintain the financial value of his asset he'd be he should be a little bit more careful about his behavior than he is i want to pick you up on one of your recent columns and it's this idea that people protesting people people disrupting because they are so concerned about climate change are no modern day suffragettes the suffragettes at the, at, in their time would surely have been seen as as a real nuisance, and and many would have found them infuriating or or indeed angry making. Is there not a chance that because the climate crisis, the the, the climate catastrophe is so real, is there not a chance that these people will at some point in the future come to be seen as suffragette like? The difference between the oil protesters and the suffragettes is very simple. The oil protesters have got all sorts of civic civil ways of expressing their opinion right they can they can vote they can stand for office they can form political parties they can sign petitions uh, they can hold demonstrations there are all sorts of things that women found it either impossible to do or difficult to do uh, when the suffragettes were um, were formed um, that the all protesters have the ability to do and so that's the difference between them not the cause as it happens i mean the the suffragette case is very interesting because as my view of the suffragettes is they were entirely entitled to the campaign that they ran only i happen to think they probably delayed suffrage my hero is millicent Fawcett, and i was you know one of the team that helped to put the statue of Millicent Fawcett in Parliament Square, because I think it was the suffragists, the democratic, um, peaceful suffragists, who made the correct argument and who were the ones who were responsible for uh, women getting the vote, primarily. And I have a similar view of Malcolm X. I think Malcolm X's contribution to um, civil rights in the United States was nugatory, that Martin Luther King was a much greater figure. But I find it hard to be critical of Malcolm X because uh, the situation for African-Americans that he had to cope with was appalling. And his ability to um, to contribute through the ordinary political system was so limited. That just doesn't apply to the oil protesters. They have got these are off. Not only does it not, it doesn't apply de de jure in other words theoretically it doesn't apply but also de facto because these people are very articulate capable intelligent people some of them have written to me and and their their, their correspondence is lucid and uh, the points that they made actually made me reflect on my own position that they they're not these are not people without either the, the power to express themselves or the civil ability to do so so that's the difference between them and, and the uh, suffrage it's not their cause now by the way the, the the issue of the cause is complicated if the cause of extinction rebellion or oil protest is simply the climate problem is very severe and we need to do something about it 
that is a limited point, which is obviously correct, and I understand why they're trying to express it. But usually, they they they're actually trying to like the insulate Britain campaign. They're trying they're demanding particular solutions, and often I don't think those solutions are particularly sensible, or that the, or that they'll work or persuade others. So I've got numerous criticisms of the of their action, but ultimately I believe the way for us to settle our political differences is in a peaceful. Uh, way in which we debate with each other about what the solutions ought to be. Uh, we contest and win power upon the basis of political ideas, and um, we uh, attempt uh, then to implement the political ideas we won power to to further. Uh, I don't think that it's reasonable for someone to say, I'm going to sit in your way uh, until you do what I say that you're going to do. And the reason for that is they think they're right, because lots of people think they're right. And in the case of the oil protesters, it's quite obvious that they're very well motivated people who who feel urgently that the climate is a problem. But, you know, the the um, the southern segregationists in the United States also thought they were right. And they thought it was a complete catastrophe for the United States to have racial integration. And they thought they were justified in taking direct action, which included in one case, obviously, shooting various of the people, which obviously you know, goes much further than anything oil, the oil protesters are contemplating doing. But they thought their direct action was justified uh, by the fact that they were right. And I'm simply arguing you can't proceed in a democratic society like that. They've got a very powerful case. And I think one that is having a political impact, had a big impact on the Labour Party, but also on the Tory party too. Clearly, they think they, they want more urgency. There are lots of ways of pressing for more urgency. I don't think it is. I think it's a council of despair to this. They won't get the urgency that they're calling for. I think they will. And I simply, you know, argue for my civil liberty should i wish to use it to say i don't think you're correct about this or your solution isn't right and i don't accept your ability to simply kind of lock yourself into the road until i kind of go oh all right then. I, I guess the reason we're talking about this is because of the disruption that some of these people have caused and if they had simply signed a petition we wouldn't be talking about it so there is an argument that because the cause is so important and so urgent although I take your point about the nuance in terms of how we fix things there is an argument that by causing disruption they're forcing national commentators such as yourself and people with a moderate level of influence such as myself to talk about it just for example when I was an LBC presenter it was easier to talk about about the environment when Extinction Rebellion had been active. Sure, I understand why they're doing it. Uh, I'm simply, uh, the question I'm asking is, to what extent do we allow them to do that? So there needs to be a wide latitude for protest and disruption, and that particularly includes targeting political targets, right? People who have got power in politics, including myself, right? And I, and I, I think that's, you know, we ought to have a wide latitude and people ought to be given a you know, a great amount of freedom to make their point in whichever way that they can. But there do have to be limits to it. And the question is, what are the reasonable limits inside the law? And I, you know, I particularly note that disrupting the lives of people who don't have any political axe to grind themselves, but are simply demanding the right not to particularly pay attention to this person's point when they're uh, wanting to press it on them. Them, uh, they should have that right because that right is important to defend and you know it's it certainly it, it's true that they're making this point about the damage to the planet i i accept actually a very large part of that case scientifically I'm, I'm often a bit more dubious about the political route they want to take to to achieve it or the economic route but i accept totally the right to it but you know also living in a 
peaceful, stable civil society in which people establish their views by argument. That's also important to to living a decent life and to the inheritance my children have. That that's also worth defending, and that's all I'm trying to do. The the the, the assumption being made by the oil protesters is that it's only their point that will be the one that will be registered in this way if we let them do it. But you know the, the example counter example I used it is you could have a you could have a um a campaign to start coal production and the reason i chose that is that was the cause right which is one of the causes that actually made me a conservative fact um when when i'd sort of often been on the kind of center left it moved me to the center right which was the minor strike uh, which people still you know have musicals about right that was a campaign in which people kind of locked together to start oil production effectively Right. I didn't accept that that was a way of progressing an argument. And I don't accept it when the exact opposite is being argued. Both of these people, um, uh, both sides of this argument, have to make their case in different ways, in my view. So my very next question was actually to delve a little bit deeper into your politics. And as you say, you haven't always been a Tory. You're a Conservative peer. You have been, I think, since 2011. But if what I've read about you is correct, Danny, in the 1980s, for almost a decade, you were a member of the Social Democratic Party. What was it that turned you into a Tory? Well, one thing that happened was the, the Social Democratic Party collapsed, or at least that isn't, you know, so let's be fair completely to that argument. The majority of the SDP decided to merge with the Liberal, Liberal Party. And I didn't want to do that. And I didn't regard the Liberal Party as expressing my view. To use a very crude phrase, I don't, it's not very helpful, but that too, left, too much of it was too left wing for me. And I thought it was, you know, insufficiently careful about public money and promises that it made on public money. I thought it was Funny enough, two interventionists in different ways. I just didn't agree with it. In different, and I, I'd had a lot of differences of opinion with the young liberals, and I, you know, was sort of coming out of the young social democrats at that time. I didn't want to join the liberal party, and that was what the SDP was doing. So I then found myself partyless, and I, I did think you know, Sue Sue Slipman, one of my colleagues in the SDP, whom I had a lot of respect and time for, wrote a very good article saying she didn't propose to join another political party. She was going to she was going to express her political opinion in different way, uh, do different things to do it you join different charity organizations she had became head of the national council for one parent family she was very effective and i i accepted that was one way of doing it it was easier for her because she already had a bigger public platform than it was for some of the rest of us but nevertheless uh it was it was a very honorable reasonable argument but i felt i needed a political coalition and i thought well this time i've got to have a political coalition that's wide enough to actually be able to win power in a two-party political system, which is what we have, and what I thought was likely that we'd, we'd have for a long time to come. Uh, and so I decided to pick, and it came around the same time, just after the battles on the miners' strike, the battles on unilateral nuclear disarmament, and, I, and actually at the same time, I was myself a member of the NUJ and a National Union of Journalists, and there was a strike at my office, which I'd chosen to be against and a combination of those things meant i chose the center right over the center left and if you're if you are and i mean i'm sure some people would differ differ in this category in this uh, classification of my politics but if you if you see yourself as kind of broadly centrist certainly as between the two parties uh you know sure i could have had tony blair as an ally definitely and at times that would have been more suitable than the path i've chosen but at other times the conservative party was so i chose that and I'm not, I've not, you know, there are moments when I've been more comfortable in that coalition and moments when I've been less comfortable. That's certainly been the case in the last few years. Uh, but uh, on the whole, I, you know, I think it was the right choice. 
the Tories have been in power for 12 years. Five of those years were with Liberal Democrats. What sort of state do you think the Conservative Party is in at the moment? Yeah, quite grim. I think it's followed the advice of the right of the party into into a blind alley. So here's what I think. I think the country is becoming more um, urban, gradually more liberal, slowly more prosperous. Uh, and the Conservative Party has chosen to to find its demographic increasingly in the opposite direction. So it's going in the opposite direction of the country is. right Now, on the way to doing that, it managed to have a big majority because the left gift made two huge errors. One was selecting in Jeremy Corbyn somebody that the British people would not elect as prime minister. And the second was deciding that it was going to hold up the Brexit the Brexit outcome and not implement the results of the referendum. Now, I should say that only a proportion of people wanted that. Some people also wanted to implement the results of the referendum, but with a but with a soft Brexit, you know, which might well have been sensible. But nevertheless, the, the combined result was to prevent us from actually doing what the referendum had established. And that I always thought would end up being quite unpopular if it ever got to a general election. And the gamble was it wouldn't, and you'd be able to stop it before it did. But it, that the gamble didn't come off. So. So uh, that those two mistakes together meant that the Conservative Party could win a majority on its route to this new demographic. Um, but now I think the Conservative Party has been narrowing itself. And, I, you know, the other day when when Suella Braverman said that thing about tofu eaters, and I, I just said, you know, adding tofu eaters, right, who are just like people who happen to be vegetarians into your list of people that you demonize is just incredibly as well as being unpleasant because i hate demonizing anybody uh and trying to sort of stereotype people in that way i hate it even when i you know everyone's guilty of it a little bit i suppose but i hate it it's a way of behaving um but it's also incredibly politically stupid there are lots of people who might vote conservative who eat tofu and I, by the way i'm not a tofu eater I, you know i'm not a vegetarian that's not the point what what would stop you from being a Tory politician? What what would take you away from the Conservative Party? What would you say? Oh. Hang on, this far and no further. Just just for yeah. example, some people might say the Rwanda policy. What okay. what would it be no, for so, you? So that's interesting. So the the Rwanda policy, I firmly oppose. I think it's um, both a trivial. Uh, you know, it come, come it has this incredible thing of being both trivial because it won't deal with the problem at all, and you know, being morally deeply problematic. Not just because you're you're forcing people to apply for asylum in another country, but also that that country is one from which we ourselves accept asylum seekers. So I strongly oppose that that policy. But I feel I, you know, interestingly enough, one of the powers of my opposition to that policy. Uh, expressed here or expressed in print is precisely that I am a Tory, a power that I would lose if I stopped being a Tory. And the reason for that is political parties are determined by the coalition of people in them. And if I were not to be a Conservative, it would obviously be another move of the Conservative Party away from the centre-right politics that I believe in. And that is an option for people like me. But interesting enough, it wasn't the option that lots of people on the centre-left took when Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, when you could say, give a list of things that might lead them to say, you know, thus far and no further, I'm going to leave. And had they done so, they wouldn't be in the position they are now. So strategically, it would be a big error. So I am disinclined to that act, to that act, because I think it's politically not a particularly wise thing to do. So the answer to your question isn't actually one policy which I found unacceptable, because I because I did do find that policy completely morally unacceptable. It would be it would be that I no longer felt, in all conscience, it was possible to change. The Conservative Party, and interestingly, I, I, I haven't reached that point. Although our unwritten constitution doesn't demand it, clearly, 
Do, do you think, Danny, that there is an argument for there being a general election, given that we have been through three prime ministers in under two months? Yeah, there's a strong argument for it. Um, but I, but I, but it's actually one I resist for a couple of reasons, really. The first and the most important one uh, by far is that I think that um, we live in a parliamentary democracy and it's incredibly important to assert that the mandate is parliamentary, not personal. To to accept that the change of prime minister requires an election, which, by the way, we did not accept in the case of Harold Wilson giving way to Jim Callaghan or Margaret Thatcher giving way to John Major or Tony Blair giving way to Gordon Brown. In all of those cases, nobody called for a general election. It would be to accept that Boris Johnson's argument that the mandate was his has some force. And I very strongly disagree with that argument. I think it's profoundly dangerous. We're not a presidential democracy. We're a parliamentary one. And every single member of parliament in their different ways has got a mandate from their voters to serve in that parliament. And the parliament can serve as long as it likes within the parliament act right uh, so uh, so i think that's an important constitutional point which would be deeply undermined by general election the case for a general election is simply um the uh the, the conservative party got itself into a position which i'm not sure it's yet got itself out of where it's where it was governing in chaos and without the ability to make reasonable decisions or appoint you know reasonable people and therefore i understood why someone you know like you if i may thinks thought thinks that um you know let's get rid of these people and we've got to just call for a general election and let's not haver about some of these constitutional objections because their their inability to govern is so great that we should they should collapse right i totally understand that as a piece of politics obviously from a center-right point of view i'm hoping that it's possible to rebuild a reasonable offer to give people an alternative so all i've never been even on the keir starmer left Right. Keir Starmer is not Tony Blair. I've known Keir Starmer for some for various idiosyncratic reasons. I've known of Keir Starmer or known Keir Starmer for a long time, you know, for 40 years because he was a, I went to school with a friend of mine. And I've, you know, I've always known that my politics are different from his. He's just more left wing than I am, uh, which is totally fine. Um, you know, that, that's really fine. but I, I'm not wild about the idea of going into a general election in which there's no coherent alternative to him. So he is you know, somewhat more self-serving secondaries. And I'd like like there to be an alternative that's constructed. And I have, you know, I've got a lot of respect for Rishi Sunak. Our politics are not exactly the same. He's somewhat smaller state than me, and he's somewhat more socially conservative than I am. But I think he's a person of integrity and ability. And therefore, the the urgency of removal, which was certainly there with Boris Johnson, whom I felt did not act with either competence or or ultimately with integrity uh, um, over the party, certainly, um, but but also over the wallpaper and various other issues like that and, and the pincher issue. That that doesn't uh, apply to Rishi Sunak. So I feel a little bit less guilty about what I accept is a bit of a self-serving position. I'm tempted to come back. We don't really have time. And I would just make one very, very quick point, which is that I, I think, I suspect in 2019, that quite a lot of the people who voted for the Conservative Party in that election, that general election, were voting for the Conservative Party because they knew that Boris Johnson was the leader, that he was a special brand of politician that meant that although, of course, we're a parliamentary democracy, as you've described, that a lot of people were voting for Boris Johnson rather than the Tories. Well, that's his argument, right? Um, so, uh, and I know that how fond you are of him, uh, Matt, <laughs> so I, I see why you want to use his argument, but I don't, I've never accepted his argument. We, we cannot accept... The arg, you know, uh, and by the way, 
one of the things that happened during the uh, general election was that he refused to appear in some of the leadership debates, which I totally accept that he should. Who appeared in those leadership debates? Rishi Sunak, right? And it's just simply not the case that he won this mandate by himself. And even if even if you can say his leadership of the Conservative Party was such that he encouraged people, which obviously, I think, obviously is true. I think that obviously did, he obviously did contribute to it. I don't think it's a constitutional position we can accept. As we've seen recently, Danny, a week is a long time in politics. Two months is a very long time in politics. So therefore, prospectively, around two years is an age in politics. While Liz Truss was still Prime Minister, you wrote a piece invoking the ghosts, at least from a Conservative point of view, of, of 1997. Very difficult to predict, but where do you think we're going to be at the next general election? Who's going to win and by how much? Well, I'd be very surprised if the Conservative Party retained a majority in the next general election. There's normally some something called the pendulum effect, and if you look at that at its normal operation, it will end... Uh, the pendulum effect comes close to giving Labour a majority, um, um, to, to, to ending the Tories' majority anyway. It's simply the amount of time um, that's passed with every year, governments lose support. But you can give the pendulum a push, and the Conservative Party certainly has done that. And I'm not sure that that support is really coming back. So the Conservative Party built a coalition that everyone talks about having added to, right, because it's added all these red wall seats. But it also had an existing coalition, uh, which included a lot of uh, centre voters who voted Remain in elections, uh, who want uh, quiet, competent government. They want a prosperous country that gently changes. Uh, they want a government that uh, has respect for the law and which respects um, and, and you know has an affection for the country that it is governing. Uh, whose relationships with foreign countries is governed by a pragmatic sense of sense of the national interest rather than some sort of ideological obsession, and increasingly they felt they felt uncertain that the Conservative Party represents that. Whereas in previous elections, and 2015 is a good example of that, they did feel that even when a lot of liberal opinion was didn't you know didn't agree with it, but they but people a lot of non political opinion did share that, and I think some of that's gone, and I wonder whether it will come back now. It, Rishi Sunak is a capable politician, although quite a young one, and it's possible that he may be able to bring some of that back. Uh, but there, are, you know, the Conservative Party now represents a very broad coalition, and one of the that's one of the reasons why he's brought in Suella Braverman as Home Secretary. Does Suella Braverman constitute somebody who uh, the non-political voter can be sure respects the law, uh, can be sure provides competent government, can be sure is somebody that they can trust to? govern our relationships with foreign countries with a sense of pragmatism rather than ideology i don't think so uh, and yet rishi sunak felt constrained to make her home secretary for reasons i completely understand politically but the force of which will not be lost on these non-political voters and i i so i wonder whether those voters will come back and I, all i was writing this article was the conservative party should not look at the polls and assume that won't actually happen in a general election i think a large sweeping electoral calamity is certainly among the options it, it may it may be that Rishi Sunak is capable of preventing that from happening uh, I suspect that he would provide a better outcome than most alternatives available to the Conservative Party but uh, we'll have to see won't we I want to get to know Danny Finkelstein a little bit better the man behind the Collins you have an extraordinary family history I want to ask you about your mother who actually knew Anne Frank and survived Bergen-Belsen survived 
the Holocaust. What was she like as a person and what sort of impact did the fact that she'd been through such brutal horror have on you as a person? Look, the only annoying thing my mother ever did in her life was die. She was just really a lovely person, Matthew. I can't really say more than that. I never really had an argument with her. I never had any issues with her. She was just an incredibly gentle, nice person. And one of her conclusions, and it may be this was just part of her personality, but I think it was also part of her experience, is that she felt everything should be in proportion. She regarded nothing more ludicrous and actually a bit offensive as people engaging in competitive Holocaust uh, memories where they tried to show that their experience was worse than someone else's because she thought it was you know, preposterous. And she had a, a sort of gentle, general humanity, but it was combined with moderation. You know, we talked about protest. One of the reasons why I don't believe that we should settle our political arguments by sitting down in front of each other until the other person agrees is because of the experience of my parents. Now, I'm not arguing for a second that an oil protester is either a fascist the experience of my mother or a stalinist the experience of my father but i do say both of them had experience of what happens when people with the greater ability to use glue one you know to use a metaphor one um power uh and were in control of how people live their lives and it was a disaster and so i you know in my political life i try to stand for a gentle progressive change which tries to bring as many people along with it and which you know possibly is a bit more small c conservative in other words resistant to change than more impatient radicals think merited and they look at the world not unreasonably and see all the things that are wrong about it and my mother was used to have this phrase about only seeing the holes in the emmentaler you know i i, I try and see the cheese and think about how many good things we have and that the change that is ahead of us may take some time and we need to have a degree of patience and do it gently but I do realize that council is quite annoying to people who reasonably reply well it's all right for you mate I note that often that's usually an insult made by people for whom it's also all right Tell us about your father, because he was born in Lviv, which was then in yeah. Poland, but now in Ukraine. Has that brought the Ukraine war or Putin's war in Ukraine even closer to home than it otherwise would have been? Yes. So I've just been writing. I am just in the process of copy editing, finishing a book which will come out next year on my parents, Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Dad, it's going to be called. And my mother's story is a sort of unusual version of a familiar story. So people are aware of the Holocaust. Uh, but my mother was the son, was the daughter of um, one of the leaders of, Ju of German Jews in the 1920s. He begins to set up a Holocaust archive, which ultimately helps with the Nuremberg trials and the Eichmann trial. She gets trapped in Holland with my, uh, my grandmother and they ultimately end up in Belsen, but they're one of 136 people among the, you know, tens of thousands of people who die in Belsen, who end up being part of an exchange, which um, Belsen was in initially established by Himmler to achieve. So it's an unusual version of a of what is a familiar story. My father's is the opposite. It's a very standard version of a story that almost nobody knows about. Uh, he was born in uh, Lviv, now Lviv, in 1929. And when the when the Germans invaded in uh, Poland in the night in 1939, under the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, 
the Soviets came from the other direction and Lviv, Lviv was in their sphere agreed in this secret annex, which they all denied existed uh, between uh, the Stalinists and the Hitlerites. And he was, as a result of that, my grandfather, who was a wealthy iron and steel merchant, was ultimately arrested and sent to the Gulag because they had held a referendum or an election under, under the terms of which Lviv became Lviv and part of Soviet Ukraine. And um, my father was then sent to a, uh, as all the families were, tens of thousands of people were deported to work in collective farms, effectively slave labour. And there he undoubtedly would have died, as was my grandfather in the Gulag, were it not for the fact that Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. Stalin then had to have a deal with the Allies, and that involved a deal with the Poles, and he amnestied the Poles. They were then released, and they found each other, which was very rare, They found each other across the Soviet Union and ultimately they went with something called the Anders Army to Iran. And that's um, where they escaped from uh, from the Soviet Union. But my grandfather, who had been a very wealthy man, he lost everything and he never recovered it. And he died effectively of of the, the, the Gulag um experience as did his brother and all i would say is of course most people who urgently desire to impress upon the rest of us change even if we don't want it because they think the world will come to an end if they don't have what they think is the right thing to do of course those people would think of themselves as people who wouldn't hurt a fly and they certainly you know that's the whole point they're being humanitarian Uh, i would simply urge those people to think what happens when the people of force get to determine what happens in a society and we no longer do it through consensus and debate because we're so fed up with the inability of consensus and debate to deliver the outcomes that we think are the right ones it's it, it was disastrous for my parents and i resist it for that reason apart among others so just to return to the question what sort of impact did this all have on you this but this background have on you as a boy growing up were you aware of it and what was your childhood like then so it's some some holocaust and um uh, you know holocaust victims in particular well and survivors don't talk about their experience which i respect completely but my mother was not like that Partly my grandfather had been the kind of archivist of the anti-Nazi movement. It became the kind of archivist of the Holocaust. He sat at something called the Wiener Holocaust Library. So it was very much, you know, it was almost like family business to talk about it. And so from my early stage, I always knew about it. Although, interestingly, when I wrote the book, I realised how much of it I didn't know. I discovered that my my mother's nanny had been a member of the resistance, something she didn't know herself. You know, So you find out all sorts of things, but I did know the story. And definitely one of the results in my family was we believed strongly in the rule of law i didn't when i was a kid i wouldn't take records because it broke intellectual property rights um and that may sound stupid but i've always i've retained maybe i've got more of this as a proportion now but i retain the view that if you want to be involved in politics you can't sort of determine what the law is for yourself that's the reason why i was so offended by uh the parties in 10 downing street because i i thought that it it was a part it was sort of saying uh, we're going to create the laws but we're not actually going to follow them which is just seems to me completely unconscionable and so we we had a very strong uh support for the rule of law we would definitely believe in political stability we were always worried about that and both my parents were kind of gentle liberals and i suppose in our generation we've taken that on um so you know with liberalism about um gay rights for example which you know my parents were sympathetic to but it wasn't on their radar 
Football's been a massive part of your life. You're a director of Chelsea Football Club. Talk to us about your passion for the game and how exciting it was for you when you became a director. It's an astonishing thing. So I'll, I'll start with this. My, you know, my father was a professor of measurement, but he was also, his hobby um, was kind of Jewish studies. Both my grandfather, my mother's father and him were sort of very bookish intellectuals. And my, my father's hobby was studying the... Um, was studying the the progressive rabbinate of Warsaw of the of the nineteenth century, and I'm not I'm making that up. So he had no interest in you know competitive sport or anything like that. He was very tolerant of his children's interests, but my brother wasn't interested either. Uh, so I, and my neither was my sister. I picked that up in school somehow. I've always been a little bit worried that it suggested that I'm sort of a bit um, susceptible to peer pressure. But whatever the reason was, I got taken by a friend when I was young to Chelsea. And I just remember going, a lot of people have this experience, going up the steps into the stadium and just falling in love with it completely and thinking, well, this is just an amazing thing. And I've always loved it. And I, about 20 years ago, I finally managed, I was always going, but I managed to get a season ticket or be part of a season ticket group. And I just always enjoyed it in a pretty non-intellectual way and then and then it became an intellectual way because I began to write for the Times on probabilities taught me a lot about statistics actually and we wrote about uh, we created a model of football um, which you know most of the books on the development of statistics and data in football think that that column you know which was only partly my creation it was also a lot of the intellectual ideas were were, were Henry Stotts and Ian Graham's my colleagues on it uh, we created this football column called the think tank which has helped to revolutionize data in football so you know I did something that I never thought I would do which is sort of have some sort of role in the game about um obviously you know uh I'm now wondering when it was, but earlier this year, when uh, when the Ukraine war started to happen, and it's very important to note that this all came, you know, came about as a result of a sort of international disaster uh, that's uh, fallen on the people of Ukraine. Roman Abramovich had to sell Chelsea. Uh, I got called up. Uh, I, I got. In, I was working. I'd been working in the past with a man called Jonathan Goldstein, whom I very much like and respect. He'd been head of the Jewish Leadership Council, and I'd worked with him. And we were just talking about the fact that he was his partner, Todd Bowley, was leading a consortium to buy Chelsea, and they asked me to join it because they felt um, they had a lot of great plans for Chelsea. Uh, Jonathan is superbly knowledgeable about football, very dynamic, but he also is a has been a Spurs fan. Um, and, um, you know, it was Todd's business partner in Chelsea and in part of it particularly. And they felt very strongly they needed to have people who had a sympathy and an understanding of the history and culture of the club. So I was asked to join their consortium, which was very amusing because, you know, they were all, uh, I mean, John is um, very wealthy and Todd, obviously, and, and Badad are billionaires. And um, it was quite amusing to find myself bracketed as part of this consortium because, to say the least, I'm not a billionaire. I found myself sitting next to you at the Oval a year or so ago yeah. and enjoyed talking to you very much. I want you to try and conjure for, for the listeners what live sport brings to you, whether you're watching in a stadium oh. or whether you're watching on telly and, and how much more enjoyable your life is for sport. It's so difficult to express it, but the um, it's like reading a novel where you really don't know the end. So I used to joke that if uh, Didier Drogba had scored in the middle of, it had scored on the last page of Swan's Way, I would have read the rest of Proust. You know, I, I just, I find it exciting and unexpected in ways that nothing else does. And I can suspend my kind of sense of um, 
you know, its deep social significance quite easily, I find. I like the community, so I enjoy the community of other Chelsea fans. Uh, I've been involved, I'm, I'm involved in the in the fan engagement side of Chelsea's work. And, I, you know, I think we're, we're blessed with, like, totally goes against the stereotype of football fans. Incredibly intelligent, committed and nice people who are involved. So I enjoy the community of it. But most of all, I just enjoy, you know, there's nothing like like you would watch a, you watch a game uh, even one Chelsea played Zagreb in the uh, Champions League and even in a game like that where you know that the result because Chelsea were going to finish top of the group whatever the result the result didn't matter tremendously this kind of excitement they scored first would we reply then at the end of the game for the last 10 minutes Chelsea were dominant but if they scored one goal it would ruin everything and you can always score one goal that excitement is brilliant it takes me out of myself and it means that you know for a minute I'm not thinking about politics or um uh you know or anything else other than the game itself it's very absorbing so I really enjoy it you won't find that many people perhaps who are excited about this World Cup. What do you think of the World Cup being held in Qatar? I think it's disgraceful to hold the World Cup in Qatar for two reasons, right? One one uh, reason for it is that um, I think it's disgraceful to hold the World Cup in places where people who um, not everybody is welcome to enjoy it, effectively. Uh, that that That's true of gay people. It's true of women. It's certainly true of the people who worked on the stadiums uh, who had to do so in very dangerous conditions. I don't think it's a suitable place to hold a World Cup. Um, I felt that often. Um, it, it is difficult in these international organisations because there are all sorts of nations that are part of it. But nevertheless, I thought that decision uh, and the way that it was reached was dubious. And secondly, I think it's ridiculous to hold a World Cup in the middle of the Premier League, se- well, in the middle of the league season. Uh, and it also means that there's no time for recuperation if someone like Rhys James or Ben Chilwell gets injured. Um, bef- uh, you know, and, um, you know, I, I, we don't know yet what what the uh, impact will be on Ben Chilwell, but but it, you know, you could see how distressed he was yesterday, and I and I uh, 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 when he was injured. Um, so no, I I think this is not a. You know, I, I really enjoy the World Cup, and the World Cup's been held there now, so we're all going to enjoy watching the games. Of course, we are. I never, personally speaking, never enjoy international games as much as I enjoy club ones. Everyone's different in that respect, but I can enjoy World Cups, you know, a lot. Um, so I'm sure we will enjoy it. Uh, but um, I wish it wasn't there. What's your social life like? You've got so many political contacts. You're a very well-known man. Are you somebody who rushes around to openings and hobnobs with influential, yeah. important, famous people? Just give us a sense of what, what life behind the scenes is like for you, Danny. <laughs> so mostly, um, my, my social life, mine and my wife's, is centred around the people that we kind of met when Nikki was 16, right? Because I married a friend of my of my wife, of my sisters. And so my social circle, including my sisters, a lot of people who um and they're mostly not political people. Some of them have got very successful careers, uh, some of them haven't got careers, some of them doing, you know, more um local things. And uh, that is the heart of my social life. And we we have my wife was refers to a group she calls everyone. Um, and that can, those are the people that are, when she talks about everyone, that's for whom she means. I, I'm really lucky that I get invited occasionally to some really, you know, to some great events. I don't, I'm not a wild fan of cocktail parties because I find them, I don't drink just because I don't like it. And, and I often find them sort of quite noisy and, you know, 
kind of a bit bitty. I'd much rather sit next to you as we did on that occasion and actually have a proper conversation, which I really enjoy, than I would, you know, snatch conversation with loads of people so that I can say afterwards that I met those people. But I do, I get a lot of energy from meeting people. I like people. So um, I pretty much enjoy whatever's put in front of me, but I don't rush to loads of book launches and things like that. I want to finish by asking you a, 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 another serious political question, because we are in, in serious political times. I think it's right to, to say that you were seen as part of the kind of Notting Hill set. You, you, you were in with David Cameron, you were in with George Osborne. How do you look back at those years of austerity? And do you think austerity is a necessary way out of where we are at the moment? First of all, wouldn't it be great if I had property in Notting Hill? Um, uh, so um, I kind of I think I'm more of a pinner mate, um, and I, I I I am a fiscal conservative. Okay, so there are some economists, you know, Danny Blanchflower is an example of this, and Jonathan Portes, who regard what I'm about to say as almost moronic. I think the household analogy of spending has a lot more to it than people think. Right? It's I just basically believe that if you're going to pay for something, if you're going to buy something, you need to be able to pay for it. Of course, states have international, you know, have stabilized. I've got a degree in economics, so I kind of, I, I wasn't that brilliant at it, but I've got some basic idea. I understand it's not exactly the same as a household, but the household analogy, understanding that it's not a household, is useful. And essentially, I believed uh, and believe more strongly rather than less strongly that you couldn't borrow infinite amounts of money because you never knew whether the next pound would be the one that they wouldn't lend you. It might be, but it also might not be. And what Liz Truss demonstrated was how true that was, right? You, you, of course, the mechanism was different, but what it demonstrated was that the, the basic truth of the fiscal argument, which is you, you, if you're going to borrow from somebody, they, they may have conditions that you can't meet, or it may cause uh, runs on the price of things. Uh, and it's not structurally a good idea. My view is there's got to be a balance between what we buy and our willingness to pay for it. And if we aren't willing to pay for something, we can't buy it. And there was a problem, which is you didn't want to raise taxes massively at a time when people didn't have very much money. And you were already borrowing a lot of money. So it wasn't as though we didn't have any deficit. And the people who opposed austerity are people who literally oppose that policy in any circumstances. There has never been a moment in the whole in the whole of my political life when any of those people has ever been arguing that the stance we should have is more fiscally conservative than the one that we've got. They never cut the, the moment when they say we should redress it now by less borrowing. You know, this time we should have our surplus or that never comes. Right. They just want to go on borrowing our way out of the problem forever. Right. So we never have to make any choices ever. Now, of course, then the the, uh, the issue comes. Was the correct balance struck between public spending and taxes in the mix? A lot of taxes were imposed and a lot of taxes were imposed on 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 wealthy people. The tax the tax take of this period was pretty progressive and equality didn't inequality didn't increase it decreased during that period so i simply i don't even i don't e i'm not even sure i understand what the term austerity means are the people who are saying they're against austerity arguing we should be borrowing some more money we should be borrowing it then we should be borrowing it in the future at what point did they think we should not be borrowing it when in the last 20 years do they think we spent too much or we taxed you know we we should have increased taxes violently and if they do these taxes were going to come from who exactly? 
right? And the proposal that someone like Richard Bergen makes, which I, you know, treat completely respectfully, because I think it's an actual, honest, concrete answer to that question, which is that we should have a wealth tax, I think is not a very good idea. I don't think people would pay it. And it's the reason why Dennis Healy backed off having a wealth tax, uh, because he didn't know how he'd define wealth or how he'd be able to do it. So I, I think that I, you know, I kind of, I vigorously defend it, actually. Um, and I'm quite surprised at the sort of weakness of the attack on it. It's like treated as if it was self-evidently not the right thing to have done. Whereas I'm not actually sure what the coherent alternative that was being posited was. And moving forward now, yes, is austerity necessary in your view? Because we might head towards a recession, the government uh, should be careful that it doesn't reduce borrowing too much um, because we're going to have to need, we're going to have to be you know, reflating rather than disinflating the economy, if that's the right, for those are the right terms, we, we need to be ensuring, you know, but obviously we've got this problem, which is that we've also got a lot, we've got very large inflation, and inflation's a big problem. So we need to get the balance right, it's going to be very hard to get the balance right. I think that it is correct to, given that we've been through the the reductions in public spending that we went through 10 years ago, you know, you've got to be careful. You're not making cuts upon cuts. And if you're making certain offers, you know, and I give as an example something that's very important to me, the functioning of the court system. That's clearly uh, underfunded. I, I actually, I almost never support strikes, but I thought the barristers were right. Um, I'm not even sure if I'd have been a barrister where I'd have, whether I'd have voted to settle, actually, at the levels that the, the criminal bar is uh, being paid. I'm not sure it's going to be proven enough in order to finance a criminal bar properly. Um, so um, I'm by no, I'm not a libertarian. I believe in a strong welfare state and a properly financed one and a reasonably generous offering. It's just that if you have it, you have to be able to pay for it. And then you have to be realistic about the sources of money which come out of people's pay, which means that they're less able to do other important social things, right, which we also have value, which which also have value to us as a society, to be able to live comfortably and with less money worries than they would do if we have uh, imposed taxes, up, you know, imposed higher taxes on them. So these are these are difficult balances. And I, whichever the government, people will wait for the government to act, and then they'll be against whatever the government uh, chooses. You know, I'm just simply saying, well, it's a very difficult choice because we can't afford to buy everything. Bonus question. Sum up what makes you happy. Oh, my 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 family, um, the whole my, my, my family, Friday evening meals at my sister's house with all of my children present, as well as my the rest of my family, my sister, and my brother and their family. That is the optimal thing. And by the way, my sister, who is a permanent secretary in a civil servants service so she's got a, a deference so she's got an incredibly uh, i'm very proud of her she's got an incredible done incredible job in her career but she'll come home after a day of doing that and the whole week still with work to do probably later and cook a meal for about 20 people anyway um she should know uh, if she listens to this podcast uh, that's pretty much the definition of happiness my wife my children and that particular type of event Danny Finkelstein, thank you very much for letting me ask you 20 questions and thank you for giving me such interesting answers.